Hello, welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 97. I'm Sean, and we're interrupting our Essen coverage to go back to Brass Tax Ronan with a review show. It is a review show. In these shows, we pick over the bones of a few games we've been playing recently. In this case, we've got six games to discuss. Sean, I am going to be discussing Role Player and Hannah Makoji and Island Dice. A little curiosity. Ooh, <laughs> what, yeah. what games have you got? So I've got Flip Ships, Carcosa, and I've got Grifters, Ronan. And also, we've been dabbling in a bit of video footage. We have a little bit. We've got this idea of sticking up very quick videos. At the moment, there's none of them longer than just over two minutes, which give you an overview of the games. And we've done three games we're covering in this episode. So we've done Flip Ships and we've done Carcosa and we've done Hannah Makoji. So if you go to YouTube and search for The Game Pits Podcast, or if you go to these games entries on Board Game Geek, you can see either myself or Sean giving you a quick introduction of the rules. And it's something we're going to go forward with. We've been discussing it, for example, when we're at conventions, when we're at Spiel in a week's time. Hopefully, we're going to be able to give you a real idea of how a game plays quickly and sort of on the spot, if you like, so that uh, you can get an idea whether you want to research it deeper or listen to our review that will be upcoming or whatever it might be. Yeah, very exciting. And don't worry, we're not actually on camera, so you're safe. It's it's a safe hands, place. Just my hands. Just hands. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. And as Ronan just said, we have a video channel on YouTube. So we are going to get rolling with a wonderful player 60-90 minute game called Role Player. This one's published by Thunderworks, who have also published Bullfrocks and Blendoff. And the designer is Keith Mateka, who designed both those games above, and also Herbaceous. In Role Player, each character will be creating a heroic role-playing character by placing dice in six attributes that will be very familiar to anyone who knows Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. There will be three six-sided dice going per attribute, and you're going to be looking to match the totals which are given to you by your class. You're going to be looking to match certain colours of dice. There are six colours of dice in the game, and also there's going to be some victory points for matching traits which you might be able to purchase as you play. So how does it go? To start with, each player gets a random class, which is a two-sided card, as well as setting the attribute scores which you'll need. For example, if you've got a warrior, you'll be after high strength. If you've got a wizard, you'll be after high intelligence. That probably makes sense to you all. This will also give you a special power to use during the game. The attributes you need to get will either be an exact number or within a range. Depending on player count, players then draw six to eight dice from the bag and start placing them in the attributes. The start player then rolls a number of dice equal to the number of players plus one and lays them out on cards in number order. Then from the start player onwards, you're going to be drafting dice. Now you're going to be drafting dice for the colour on them, for whatever the number is rolled on them, depending upon what attributes you're trying to get and what values. And also, you're trying to get your place in initiative order for the second phase of each round. 
When you place a die into a position next to an attribute, each attribute has a special action which will allow you to do various things like flip over a dice, take a discount for the purchasing phase which is coming up next, various different effects. Now, in initiative order, as in whoever took the less most dice in the first phase, we're going to be going to the market. There'll be a row of cards coming out that refreshes each round. And you're going to either buy a card or bury a card. Now, there are different various types of cards in the game. There's armor available, which is sort of a set collection situation, whereby if you can collect the whole set of leather armor, you're going to get more bonuses, chainmail, plates, whatever it might be. There are weapons. You're limited in how many weapons you can have, and they will give you special abilities during the game. There are skills. Now, skills can do all sorts of quite powerful powers. However, each player would have received an alignment card at the beginning of the game and the alignment will show them where they want their alignment cube to be in a nine position grid and again like advanced dungeons and dragons goes from lawful good to chaotic evil through the neutrals and all the rest of it every time you use a skill card it's going to move your alignment cube around that little nine place grid and you must keep your alignment cube within the grid for starters and secondly you're trying to keep it in the area given to you by random you can reset one skill each turn but you can use as many as you want on a turn and the last type of market card you can get are traits, which I mentioned earlier, and they will give you specific ways of scoring VP at the end of the game. For example, usually you might want high dexterity, but if you've got the clumsy trait, having low dexterity will score you. Or they might give you extra points for having rows of particular colour dice or columns of particular colour dice. You're going to play 10 to 12 rounds, again, depending upon number count. At the end, you're going to score. Have you matched those number totals or range for your class? Have you matched the colours given to you by your background cards? You might want a, a blue dice to be the second one in Wisdom, for example. You'll get an extra points for your class colour dice. Each class comes with one of the colours. Your alignment position, you'll get plus or minus points depending upon how close you've got to your allotted alignment. And then you'll score for your armour set collecting and those traits VP cards. Sean, role player, how did it first strike you? Well, roleplay is one of those games, Ronan, that it kind of got past me the first time round. There was a lot of buzz around it. It was on Kickstarter, but I managed to stay away from it because I was trying to avoid Kickstarter at the time. I deliberately didn't look at it because I thought that's going to be right up my street. But once I did investigate it, Ronan, I very quickly became confused. Like, who am I? Why am I doing this? It, it, was, it was a bit weird. Like that you're actually rolling a character that you're never actually going to use. That just struck me as weird, and I didn't bond with that theme at all. You're, you're really insulting teenage or pre-teen <laughs> myself now. We've talked about it before on the show. I used to spend hours making role-playing characters to no end. Literally did nothing with him, just made the character and wrote the story. So I absolutely love the idea of this show. And I was like, amazing. I think the Kickstarter was quite expensive for shipping to the UK, which is why I avoided it. But I did manage to pick it up when it came to retail, and I was very excited to open this box. I didn't have any of your scepticism. It just didn't sit well with me at all, Ronan. Now, uh, did you feel about the looks of the game, the iconography? Did you find out they were decent? Yeah, you got loads of dice. And the dice are of decent quality. There are loads of cards. Everything makes sense. Iconography, because there's slightly similar powers here and there for turning a dice or re-rolling a dice, a couple of them are a little bit confusing. But the whole game centers around getting dice, manipulating them and putting them in place. So I guess with so many similar little powers, it may have been difficult for them, Sean. Did anything strike you about components? 
I just found that everything was a little bit on the bland side. It was okay. I wouldn't have picked it out of the crowd as being ugly, but I certainly wouldn't have picked it out of the crowd as being sh- like a really striking, beautiful game to look at. Yeah, it was okay. I was able to quickly glean what everything did. and that's, that's But okay is good enough for me. I'm not looking for yeah, exciting. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it does the job. Cool, great. Let's crack on with actually playing. Mm, in mm. terms of actually playing. Now, when I got the class cards and looked at them i was expecting there to be a real variation between the classes you know like a wizard might have a target level of seven or whatever for their strength but 18 for their intelligence and maybe the other way around for a warrior it struck me that all of the goal numbers seem to be very high uh, the lowest i can think of is maybe a 13 or something like that which you think on six-sided dice if you roll them randomly that's that's actually a pretty high target to get for everything for like your weakest of your attributes but when you start playing because when we start off you think oh this is gonna be really hard i'm never gonna get all these you know a, an exact 17 it turns out that there is dice manipulation all over the place and what that did to me sean was that It made the first few rounds boring because I didn't feel stress in what I was placing because I kind of knew that somehow later on I'd be able to turn that dice around and turn it into almost whatever number I needed. I don't think it's hard enough to get the range you want. And funnily enough, they've done that by making all the numbers high but giving you too many powers. See, now you're kind of jumping ahead for me because that was pretty much going to form a major part of my summing up the game. Was oh, that, that's not a good sign. Yeah, it's a puzzle, but I didn't find it a particularly difficult puzzle. I found it quite easy. Yeah, you're relying on a certain amount of luck, but I found it fairly easy to get the dice colours in the right position and get into those numbers wasn't a massive pain in the neck. And yeah, I, I thought I'd be struggling a lot more than I did. I feel like they made it so that you can have that much dice manipulation because everyone's target is very even. I love the idea of the trait cards in the game. So look, if I can choose to be a clumsy barbarian, that's cool because my low dexterity will score for me. But those trait cards don't come in time for you to set up where you want to go. You start with six to eight dice in place. Now, I don't know what that sounds like a lot, but eight out of 18, almost half your dice are placed before you even begin to start playing the game. So the trait cards then come along after a few rounds and you're pretty much set on a course. They either suit you or they don't suit you. I wanted much more me dictating where my hero goes and having decisions. At at the first half of the game, all I'm looking at is colours to try and and match that background card and go, I need a green in second place and a red in first place. That was it, really. I, I wasn't thinking too hard. No, not at all. So the next thing that really struck me about the game, now I'm not one of those people that really needs interaction in every facet of every game. I know. I'm quite quite happy to play with my head down. Go on, say it again, I know. And (laughs) this one, even for me, it struck. You got that slight interaction with the selecting what card or what dice to take. And after that, it really is a solitary game. You don't hardly look up at all Ronan no you're not really paying attention to what anyone else has done first time I really take notice is either if they're doing something ridiculously powerful or at the end of the game when we're scoring I think in fact the only time I really care what someone else was doing is that you get these different classes and to be honest they're not balanced 
uh, some of them are just awful and some of them are just great. The Rogue, for example, if they use a skill card, they can choose whether to move their alignment cube or not. Our skills are really powerful and the major block and obstacle on you using a lot of them is the fact that they move your alignments. So if it moves your alignment up and you get to the top, it's only a 3x3 three three grid. You can't go any higher. You can't use that card anymore. The Rogue can. The Rogue can use whatever skills they like and that was just desperate. Yeah, that's, that's massive. I'm yet, to see the, uh, I'm yet to see the Rogue lose a game, to be honest with you. It's massive. It's like additional action points, isn't it? Yeah, uh, every crazy. every every turn you get how many action points you want. <laughs> so yeah, that's a rock and roll moment. I think that that one might have to be torn up. <laughs> a rock and roll player moment. Oh, I like it. I like it. Thanks. You didn't like it, but thanks. Thanks for your charity, Sean. I think we're pushing in a direction here. Should we not belabor the point and get to it? I think I know where you're going with this one, Ronan. I don't think I disliked it as much as you did. I I was trying to stay positive this review. Don't spoil my conclusion. I came into this thinking that I was really going to dislike it because of the thing. I just don't get this sort of, you are a role player role in their thing, this meta thing. No, I didn't get it. I don't like it. We've had our arguments before about it, Ronan. But what I got was a fairly soulless, dice puzzle game yeah there's a little bit of playability with the different makeup of the characters and the various ways that they work i don't hate it i'm going to give it a go with natalie because i think she might actually like it but for me it's not a great game i struggle to say it's even a good game it's meh so i came in with different expectations which might somewhat (laughs) swing our views on the game i was thinking i was really going to like it and man i did not I was bored, took too long, too much of the game was decided before I even started. It was unthematic, and at the end of the day, the whole thing just felt pointless. Why was I spending 90 minutes to do this? It had the input of a 25-minute quick dice game. I stretched over far too long. There's no magic in this whatsoever, and this is a hard pass for me on roleplayer. Oh, there we go. Okay, let's see if we can raise the bar slowly from there. It's It's not going to be difficult, is it? It's really not. It's Flip Ships, designed by Kane Kalenko, coming from Renegade Game Studios, one to four players. So the theming behind this is an alien mothership has appeared over a city and is spewing out fighter crafts, and we must defend that city. So if you've ever seen Space Invaders, that's the picture I want you to have in your mind. So, you've got a board that's lined up vertically to one side of the table. This is divided into sections of space and finally the city's sky. The tracks for the city health and the mothership health are on this board. Then you're going to have cards with alien fighter ships laid out in rows in the top two sections. Players are going to essentially try to land on the alien ships by flicking or flipping little round tokens representing the city's defence ships towards and hopefully onto the aliens. If at the end of a turn there are defence ships overlapping the alien ships, the alien ships are destroyed and they are removed. And then more ships are going to be added and the aliens are going to move down by various amounts towards the city. Any ships that hit the city skies, i.e. are in that section, are going to cause the city damage and go back into the deck. And the city's health marker is going to be moved down depending on what damage is scored. Some ships have special powers. You have ones with shields, extra moves and extra damage. 
You also have markers on that city health track that release new ships with different powers as the health of the city decreases. The players are going to win if they get rid of all those alien ship cards and then they have one turn each to destroy the mothership. Now the mothership is a little box and you've got to flip your tokens into the mothership itself. The aliens are going to win if the city's health is ever reduced to zero. That, in a nutshell, Ronan, is flip ships. I'm going to flip ship you here, Sean, with my flipper Runu, and I'm going to kick off with how the game looks and components. I love the artwork. I love the overall look. I think it's fantastic. It's different. It's not the usual take on this sort of thing, and it attracted my eye immediately. So here's the thing for me. I'm not a fan of the artwork. It doesn't sit well with my personal taste, but I can appreciate it from a certain standpoint. I can see that it's different, and I certainly can see the appeal in the artwork. It does make the game stand out, and I love the way that the flip ships on the box, you can flip it round, and it looks exactly the same, upside down. You're easy to please, you really are. I am, I am, I am am very easy to please. (laughs) I know you said before to me you didn't like the artwork. As an overall, when it's on the table, how do you feel about it it looks? I think it's an eye-catching game on the table. I think people are going to turn their heads and say, well, what is that? The spectacle of it is is quite intense. Only slight issue with the artwork is some of the ships, you can't tell from a distance. They are what they do. They're not different enough for me. The actual numbers and what have you are quite small, but mm. the game doesn't take up that big a footprint and you're all kind of, you've got a chance to walk around and have a look. I, I didn't find that to be a major issue. The second thing that really pulled me in and I think pulls players in easily is that if you like the look of it and you come over to my table, I can have you up and running and playing the game in under two minutes and just say, yep, this is what you've got to do. Flip that. We'll talk about these ships in a minute. This one's quick. This one's slow. This one's shielding all the others. And we're just off and running, Sean. Very, very simple teach. Yeah, super easy to explain, man. And this was, I believe it was our first pit stop on YouTube. Because plug, it was, plug, plug. Plug, plug, plug. Because it was <laughs> such an easy one for us to test ourselves out on, and for you to just bang on the table. Really easy. Here you go. That's flip ships. And again, you use that template of Space Invaders, and people kind of already know what you're talking about. They certainly do. So, positive start when you're trying to get people to play. What about actually playing the game? One thing I'll say to you, Sean, is that in some dexterity games, if you get not that many goes, especially if you're not that great at dexterity games, it can feel very frustrating and very punishing. And I think the idea of a co-op dexterity game might really put people off because they'll be like, oh no, I'm just going to let the team down. I'm not going to be any good. You get loads of flips in this game. You're going to hit something at some point. If you don't get beyond the skies of the city, you get up to two reflips. So you're getting more chances if if you're not going that well. I think that everyone gets a chance to feel useful at some point during the game. Yeah, case in point, Vernon, you managed to hit something occasionally. I know, and I am just awful at this. <laughs> just, just, I don't know what it is. I'm terrible at it. So, yeah, the dexterity side, with those additional ships that are brought in as the city gets closer to destruction, Ronan, that's a really good way of making sure that the game stays tense and people stay within the game. 
I think the other thing as well that's clever is if you just went from two ships up to seven ships and they were the same and you're, oh, yeah, I'm just flipping the same. The fact that as the ships come in, they're different. And then you start actually thinking about the power that each ship has. Oh, oh, is this a level two ship? Oh, I'll attack that because it hits anything on the same row. Oh, but my level three ship. Oh, maybe I'll go for the mothership with this one because I can get a second flip. And it could be just flipping seven tokens and it would feel like you're doing the same thing every round. That tiny little tweak of thinking really makes a huge difference. I, in my head, it does anyway. It really does. And I think what this one as well, Ryan, is that, sense of achievement when you do do something for the team and everyone's like yeah well done come on do it again do it again i think it's actually palpable you actually get quite excited as as you land on these cards (laughs) in the middle of a table it's the it's the best bit of a co-op right when you actually feel useful and you're like i did that i did a good thing okay maybe i'm gonna throw a couple of slight concerns at you sean in order to win the game, you have to get through the whole deck of ships and you have to also kill the mothership. Could there be the chance of an anticlimax if, by hook or by crook, the mothership is taken out before the deck of attackers has got through? So you don't get that final flip-off excitement. Yes, but I also think it's a good tactic to have, to think about, okay, who's got powers that are good for taking out those motherships? Because you can't use your actual powers in the last one, can you? It's a tactic within the game. Yeah, maybe not quite as exciting. Maybe not that real nervous finish when it comes down to the last couple of ships. But I still think you get a lot lot out of the game without that. And be honest now, were you ever actually really aiming at a specific attacker during the game? Or were you kind of flipping in their general direction? I think at times when you've got those shield ones, I certainly was. When you, certainly when you first start, all you're doing is going for groups. But I think as it, they whittle down, you're definitely picking ones out that you'd rather destroy. Fair enough. Okay. I think people are going to be picking up on this one as they did with Roleplayer, but the other way around. I like flip ships a lot. I think it's fun. I think it's quick. I feel like you are working as a team, and yet individually you feel powerful. Those ship individual powers really make a big difference for what could be considered to be a minor part of the game i was totally charmed by it i love that it's a really easy system to make it tougher because there's so many cards in the game you only use part of the deck and if you're getting good at it you just increase the size of the attacker deck and that increases the difficulty of the game the same as every other part of the game it works simply smoothly and well and i'm a big fan of flip ships this game is way more fun than it had a right to be. I was not excited about this. I've not really found a flippy, like flick em up or catacombs, that type of game that I've really enjoyed. This is the first one. The cooperative side is strong. There's a real sense of achievement. I think the dexterity is fun, but I love that the variety of the ship individual powers, that just makes the game for me. So flip ships absolute success for me i think i'll probably end up buying it running and that was yeah and that was flip ships fantastic so the last game for this half of this episode is a 2015 release from casual dragon games designed by jason goff who has no other ranked games designed it is called island dice for two to four players 30 to 60 minute playtime competitively players are playing as groups of explorers on a modular island which is made up of hexes you're trying to survive either be the last person standing 
or trying to control the four native villages which you'll find on the island. Those native villages are linked to the four different terrain types you'll find on the different hexes. And at the beginning of each game, the island is randomly, if you like, set up with the villagers getting put down by players in a sort of drafting style. On your turn, you're going to roll three dice which are fixed and three other dice out of 11. Now, the three dice that you must roll are your population movement and gems. If you roll a six on any of those three dice, you can get one explorer into play in the same place as one of your other explorers. And then the other dice you have remaining can be split into movement points to move across hexes or to get an income in gems. And why do you need gems? Because at the end of each round, you're going to have to pay a small amount of gems as feeding for the number of explorers you have or those gems can be used to power special actions during the game. The other dice available for you to choose from the pool are there are four times dice, one for each of the types of natives, and they allow you either to spawn natives or move them around the board. And you can move natives into other players and they might rob gems from the other players and cause problems for them. You've got immunity from any natives if you control their village. You can roll a dice to attempt to restrict another player from moving through certain types of terrain if you feel like that, that would be handy to you. You can roll a dice to make you immune to natives for a particular colour, whatever colour you roll. You can roll an extra dice for that gem income or more movement on a turn. Or there are dice where you could possibly get a new explorer, although if you don't get a new explorer, you'll get one gem. Or take a chance to randomly kill someone else's explorer, which is a one in six chance, or it will cost you some gems. The other die that's available is the Cataclysm die. Now, that's going to do one of six things. The four different terrains are four of the faces of that die, and if a terrain is rolled... Everything that's on that terrain, whether it be explorers or natives, is going to have to roll a survival die, and there's a one in three chance for each of them of dying. The other two sides correspond to a whirlwind or a huge monster that can come into play. Now, the monster will spawn on its hole, and then every time it's rolled, it will move two hexes, eating everything that it comes across. For the whirlwind, that will spawn in a certain place as well. That will only move one hex each time it moves. However, it's got an area effect of all hexes around it, and you've got to roll a survival die again if the whirlwind comes next to you. If it's on you, that's it, you're gone. You can also move your explorers in to attack each other. When you attack, it's a simple D8 roll off, although for every two cubes, two explorers you're ahead in terms of numbers, you get plus one to your roll. Whenever a combat is begun, it happens to the death, and when one side is eliminated. If a player ever rolls three of the same number on those population movement and gems, they're D6, then you have a special round in which 13 dice are rolled, and you get two tokens put into the pool, which allow you to move the whirlwind and the monster. And everyone takes turns drafting one at a time to take actions. It's a special kind of crazy mental round. That's not to say that all the other rounds aren't a bit crazy and mental. So like I said, an island dies, you're trying to be the last person standing or control all four villages. Now, Sean, there's a fellow who has a blog on Board Game Geek called Seer Magic. His name's Dustin. And I love reading his blog, he does it most weeks, and he said that Island Dice was fun, and it had a 6.8 rating on Board Game Geek, and I thought, is this a hidden gem coming out of the, uh, basically the Gamecrafter vaults? So I thought, I'd take a risk on it, and I'd get it imported from the US. What do you think so far, Island Dice? How do you think about that decision? Uh, maybe something that should have remained hidden. Wow, that's, a, that's an early reveal. Most of my notes on this one revolve around me going, what? 
Why? <laughs> How? <laughs> so, okay, right. So let's let's start where I like to start. The game I think looks really dull, really bland. No. Apart for yeah, it does, and it's a bottom ache to put all those tiles together to start off. It's not that bad. It's, it just jumps down. No, it don't. It, it took more time than I w- wanted it to take for this game. Anyway. It doesn't look good to my eyes. I thought it was all kind of beigey, blandy. There was nothing. The gems were nice, and the the creatures, the world, the whirlwind was cool, and the monster standing. The dice, cool. the dice are nice. Well, they're okay, they're dice. They're not amazing, but okay. I will concede that it's not the worst looking game I've ever seen. But then you start playing it. <laughs> I'm going to jump in, by the way. Go on. Before you start playing it. You come across what's possibly the worst rule book, rule book in quotes, ever written, written in quotes for a board game. Oh, God. It doesn't have the rules in it. It doesn't have the rules. It's it's, 30% of it is bad jokes. It tells you all the exceptions to rules before it's told you what all the dice each, which is the last part of it. And even then you're trying to work out what's going on. You're like, what? What does that do? I don't understand, Sean. But Ronan, yeah, it doesn't tell you what all the dice do. But does that matter? Are you gonna <laughs> use are you gonna use the vast majority of those dice? <laughs> well it's three you have to roll, and if you're in this house, you have to roll the cataclysm dice every turn. That's that's non-optional. Because that is the funniest part of this game. It's maybe the only fun part of the game, but Sean, it is funny. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. We were laughing and joking. But were we making our own fun at the expense of the game? Or was the game encouraging that frivolity? Or is it subtle genius? Because every time I've played it, people have been absolutely laughing all the way through this game. Maybe this is like a Monty Python-esque bit of board game design, which teeters just on absurdity. It's because it, it's so bad. It's so bad. It's funny. It's like one of those terrible, like Plan B from Outer Space. So maybe this will be like a cult hit. Because like when we were playing it, there was five dice that you, basically we were insisting on everyone roll the five dice. The one that either you kill somebody or you actually cost you money, and there's only one face out of the six that you can kill someone. Obviously, the cataclysm dice, and the three that you had to roll anyway. Then it's just like a pick whatever one you want. It really doesn't matter. Oh, I think you've missed the hidden depth to this. <laughs> <laughs> you said that like you roll the dice to kill someone, it costs you gems. But the whole gem economy is mental. Absolutely mental. It's like you might be making three or four in income a turn, but the natives can easily rob them from you. <laughs> you have to pay as upkeep for your cubes as a minimum of one. And then there's actions that cost like more than 30 gems in the game. And you're like, when am I? I couldn't get eight gems together for the simplest action, like getting a native to attack someone. How am I ever going to get 30 something gems? The economy is completely out of whack. And it's not the only thing that's out of whack. (laughs) (laughs) If you play to win this game, it is so boring. Because all you're doing is running away and avoiding everyone and trying to be the last to survive and hoping the cataclysms take them out first. And it drags the game out. Now, this is what makes me laugh. The designer says, stick a 30-minute time limit on this game to stop people from running away. That's not in the rule book. (laughs) 
<laughs> it could just be running round and round and round with no end to the game. It could literally go on forever. I literally wrote down this. The second point, if you play this game to win, it would be very, very oh, dull. God. What about if you've got that like, one cube left, you just keep taking a movement die and just running away from everyone? Yeah. <laughs> you just run around Benny in it around the island and no one could kill you. Even this game had me excited about something possibly happening. And even that was a disappointment. It's that when you roll three of a kind and oh, yeah. <laughs> everything involved. Once the monster and the whirlwind have been taken. And the cataclysm. And the, ca- and the, the, kill, ca- the, the cataclysm ones. shouldn't be in there. We discovered. Oh, yeah, right. we, we discovered because that wasn't that's, in the rule book either. That's not in the rules. <laughs> that's not in the rules. Once you've taken those out of the equation, there's nothing left to take them out. Like, well, I don't want to take. You have to. Oh, I'll take. Oh. I'll take two gems. I don't know. And yeah, and you you can count around. You can say right, there's, there's five dice left. You're going to get a minus, and you're going to get a minus. <laughs> I'll be I'll, I'll be immune to green natives. There are none within eight spaces of you. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, but I'll if, take that one anyway. If one pops up, I'm immune. Just, just understand that. <laughs> <laughs> but we laughed during the games of it, and we've laughed during the review of it. Surely it's doing its job. <laughs> listen, listen. Let me tell you one thing before we go to summing up. It's not much more than just pointing and laughing for this game. You know, I said it was rating six point eight on Board Game Geek. Mm-hmm. I, I went. I probably should have dived a bit closer before I bought it, but I, I, I dove in for this because I like to look at the comments and the ratings on BGG to get a feel for how wrong I am about things. Thirteen of the forty-three ratings are nine and a halfs or tens, and all those people live in the New York Buffalo area. Now I don't know where Jason Goff lives. Fucking <laughs> take a stab. It's in the New York Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's a reliable rating, folks. Oh, who is the member of his family who put a nine and a half in there? Like, they've got enough integrity not to make it a ten. <laughs> Don't tell him. Don't tell him. No, no, no. It's, it's, they'll never guess. They'll never guess. Nobody put a ten in. They'll never get it. I'll be hidden amongst the long grass. Ah, <laughs> oh, Sean. <laughs> Still making us laugh. Listen, I've had about three or four hours of laughter out of this game. I'm, 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 it may have been worth the investment. Go on, what's your final thoughts? It's one of those. It's so bad, it's funny. And nothing about the design of this that shows any merit whatsoever. It's island dice. It's total rubbish. But I loved a lot. It's peculiar. It's not a finished product. The whole thing is just a lie. But, you know, it made me laugh, so whatever. If you're in that sort of a mood for something absurd and you see a copy of Island Eyes, try and give it a go. But I'm sorry about that rule book. And let's, let's not brush over the fact that you were going to give it to me as a present. Before I'd played it, don't stitch me up, Nick. <laughs> because I heard it was a fun thematic dice roller, I, and it was unusual. I thought, I'll oh, surprise Sean with this. And that something in my head made me stop and go, I'll just check it out first. <laughs> I kind of wish I hadn't. I kind of wish I'd given it to you and told you it was really Imagine good. that. Sitting there on my birthday going, oh, oh, let's try let's try this one. Why does he hate me? <laughs> Final confirmation. Anyway, uh, don't don't buy anyone island dice for their birthday. That's that's not going to be a lasting relationship. We're going to take a minute to compose ourselves, and we'll be back for the second half in a sec. 
Okay, welcome back. Now we are going to showcase a game that's coming out in Essen. It's Carcosa. It's from One Free Elephant, designed by Nigel Kennington, and it's one to four players. This is another one. Little plug. It's another one that Roland has done a pit stop video for. Plug. 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 So if you want to know what the game looks like and, and a bit of an overview, then please go and have a look at that. This is set in the Lovecraft world. And in Carcosa, players are summoning the city of the King in Yellow. Very much like Carcassonne, you lay tiles, claim certain areas by placing meeples. But in this case, they are cultists. And the tiles are placed face down until activated. And the theming behind this is they are not forced through into the human realm yet. You have to power them in some way to do this. So tiles are placed on a cult board in multiple stacks. But to select them, you must move a profit meeple onto the stack that you choose from, and this blocks others from taking from this stack. Therefore, you will always have a choice of two stacks. Okay, let's go on to the actual tiles themselves. Districts are basically like city areas, and when surrounded by Lake Halley, you're going to complete the city and score the points. You can also gain a cultist back into your hand or your player area if it has a little theatre symbol. Now you have ley lines, and these are power lines that are crackling through this city of Carcosa. And you're going to score points for each section of these that have a conflux power in them. If they don't have a conflux, then you're going to be able to turn over one of your ritual stones, and I'll get onto the ritual stones later. We also have a ritual site, and when stabilised, this is going to score for all the tiles that surround it. Now, some ritual sites are called feasters, and they are going to devour any cultists on it, or that have been laid in the waters of Lake Halley around them. I get back onto the ritual stones now. These are tokens that need to be powered, and when they are powered, you're going to get a one-off bonus or score a point at the end of the game. Points are scored. As per just described, you get certain points for each of those actions and to putting them into the realm of humans. But if players reach the end of the score track, each time they score beyond that, a cultist is going to be placed on the cult mat. If you place three, you instantly win. Otherwise, it goes down to the most points scored. That's Carcosa, Ronan. This is very much a take on Carcassonne. And it's going to be almost impossible for us to discuss this without heavily referencing Carcassonne because the districts look like cities, the ley lines look like roads, the rituals are akin to monasteries and superficially the sacrifices that you lay down in the Sea of Heli are like farmers. But we will do our best to try and judge it on its own merits as well, starting with, uh, and this probably isn't a great place for Carcosa to start by comparison of the looks and the functionality because when you're choosing those tiles, Sean, they're shadow side up and they are meant to be grey and they're meant to be mysterious, but they're too mysterious and it's quite hard to discern their function. Right, two points to that. I really like the theming behind that and the thought that has gone into that 
because in any Lovecraftian novel or any Lovecraftian game, the elder gods or the elder cities are always trying to break into the human reality, and that's the big struggle. Perfect theming behind this. It looks quite haunting in the grey, but it is really difficult to tell what things are once they're on that board you really are struggling and even when they flipped over Ronan I didn't think it was the nicest of artwork I actually quite like it when they're flipped over I don't want it to be all too colorful and bright and all the rest of it I think the ley lines push out and it invokes a feeling of the theme so I kind of disagree with you there, but I do I do agree that I like the thematic reason for them coming in face down and the fact that somehow they must be powered to flip over. That gives it that eldritch Lovecraftian sort of feel. Right, so Ronan, the elephant in the room for this one for me. Is it a one-free elephant? <laughs> it's, it, might, it might be. That wasn't even planned. <laughs> it's, it's not very free because it's in the room. It's stuck in the room and it won't leave the room. So I don't know how free it is, but it did not sit well with me how closely this looked and felt like Carcassonne. Maybe not vanilla Carcassonne, but it felt like it's a variant. Even the shapes of the cities looked very similar to the shape of the Carcassonne cities. There's so many similarities. How close can you get to a game before it gets uncomfortable? I'm going to put it to you Mm -hmm. that this game is not that close to Carcassonne. And I'm going to take you through a few of the mechanical differences to try and say, because this is, even since we posted our pit stop, which is only a couple of days ago from recording, it was at the weekend as this comes out, there's already been comments online and people we know have said it to us and people are saying it's a Carcassonne ripoff. Ah, and they're getting angry. Okay. Yes, it clearly is based on Carcassonne. It's also called Carcosa and superficially it's very similar. But we just talked about it. The fact that the tiles come in face down and have to be flipped over and that they're not in action and that, in fact, you can't choose when to score a ritual site for example it must be powered by a ley line or a dominion on the same tile that is different to carcassonne i knew you were going to say this i don't disagree on any of those points but the shell of the game is what i'm talking about yeah they come in and you have to flip them over it's it feels like it should be in the line of carcassonne discovery carcassonne amazonas it feels like it is the cath- but 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 there's more there's more than that though there's other stuff as well the ritual stones you don't get them in Carcassonne so the ley lines that either score you points as normal as a road would or they'll power ritual stones in which you have the one-off powers no we don't I'm gonna keep carking back to the same argument it's it's okay but I'm I'm drilling this home for a reason <laughs> right so I'm gonna go to the next thing the tile selection is different to Carcassonne. The fact is there are stacks and you move around and you can kind of block people off and anticipate. And some of the ritual stones allow you to mess around with the stacks so that you're not freeing up the tile that's underneath your oracle. So you're not setting someone else up. And there's a more gamely management there than Carcassonne is draw a tile and you get whatever you get. As we played Carcassonne, people were moaning about the luck of tile draw. And I can't get You have at least twice the choice plus the possibility of special powers it is a different tile selection system than you get in Carcassonne. 
I get where you're going. I get where you, they've done. I've got, I've you're, got, I've got you're, more. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, I that's fine. You're saying that they've done enough for you to I've move away. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. The end of game trigger is different to Carcassonne. You will never go through all the tiles. Two of the tiles have to be depleted, or much, much more likely, you have to engineer scoring enough points in order to hit the end of the track and then have enough of your cultists in easy scoring positions so that in very few rounds you can trigger them three times and get on the king in yellow board and end the game that's not in carcassonne okay have you got any more because you're banging this one home i've got one more i've got one more because i'm going to draw this point home and then we can move on the meeple management system Whenever you score a cultist, generally, unless it's been sacrificed, which goes in the middle and you have to get back via theatres, it goes mad, it goes into your asylum, and you won't get it back for a couple of turns. It is more gamey, it is more thinky. The way that you use your meeples, the way that they're considered to be a resource, is not the same as in Carcassonne. Okay. Okay. Are you done? Now, just let me roll in here before you jump in on my head, because I anticipate it and it's all okay. After Dominion came out, the first one or two deck builders put a thank you to Donald X. Vaccarino in their rulebook and said, oh, he's come up with this idea of deck builders, isn't it great? Now, no one bats an eyelid that deck builders, and they are absolute clones out there of Dominion, and no one cares. No one cares that Trains has just got a map, is Dominion with a map, all right? No one's calling them out. No one's saying it's a disgrace, and it should be this, and it should be that. It's just... There's a system, other people have slightly adapted it. All those changes to Carcassonne, is it because it's been around for so long that this hasn't really been done before? Why is this game getting so much flack for it and not other games? You're talking about in Dominion, you're talking about deck building. Deck building is one mechanism, okay? Tile laying would be the mechanism and matching tiles would be the mechanism in, in Carcassonne. Yeah, that's fine. I've got a game here called Cornwall. It does a Carcassonne styley that it branches off before it copies all of the base mechanisms of, but of it Carcassonne. But it doesn't copy all the base Listen, mechanisms. Uh, it copies wait, one. Wait, let me talk. So, all right. <laughs> the, you've, they copied the roads. You've got the, the ritual sites. The fact that you score for having nine round it when, when they come round. You might score. You, you might, might okay, but okay, but it's still the same scoring mechanism. You've got the cities; they look exactly the same, and they score. They score two right. points for every the one of them. The cities, I'll give you. You've the got cities are the same. Okay, you've got okay. The fields are slightly different, but you still lay a meeple down. In but they're the, nothing like farmers. That you cannot have that. Yeah, of course no, I can. You, the the outer area, you lay someone down, and they might score later on so in the what? game. And they score at the end of the game if they're still hanging around, just like Carcassonne. Okay, they not the same type of scoring, no, but they still are the score. No, vital bit of scoring in Carcassonne. Sacrifices are a gamble that you're taking in the whole complicated I, I, yeah, I, system. Yes, I agree that there, there's a lot different to it, but they stood on the shoulders of giants. To get where they are. They've taken Carcassonne and said, right, we're going to build from Carcassonne. That, to me, is doing half a job of designing the game. That's that's absolute rubbish, because every game that's designed does that. Where do we stop? Every time there's a trick taker with a twist, do we shout at them saying, oh, it's just a trick taker with a twist? There's hundreds of them designed every single year. 
Or do we do we start shouting at Yido for for being similar to Lords of Waterdeep, attacking some more things on? Because that's what Carcosa's done to Carcassonne. Do we shout at Bezier Games no, for making no. wear words? Well, it's exactly the same game as Insider with some special roles. We can go on and on and on with examples whereby a system has been taken and some extra stuff has been tacked on it. It's just that Carcassonne is this sacred sheep we're not allowed to touch. Let's move on. I just think that the amount of things that have been taken, the amount of individual small things that have been taken and just built on and slightly tweaked or made thematic for the Cthulhu Lovecraft world. I think it was just a bit much for me. Now, I'm not saying that I'm playing a role here. I'm just having the argument because I thought it was worth having the argument because it is causing a lot of heated discussion within the, the gaming world. And I think it's going to cause a little bit more as it goes on. So I just wanted, I knew you had your standpoint. I've got my standpoint, but I'm not married to it. But I think it was worth having that discussion. Yeah, I think we both kind of went a little bit more extreme on our thoughts there. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to play devil's advocate in these things because you've got to dig into the, the extreme points, I think, sometimes. Let's say it acts like a Carcassonne variant. And yeah, yeah. the level of variation, whatever, I think it's quite varied. You think less so. Do you like it? As a Carcassonne variant, do you like any Carcassonne variants? Do you enjoy the game? Mm, I tell you what, I started off thinking, you know what, I, I wasn't enjoying it because I was a little bit confused by the graphic design choices, and I was a little bit, oh, this is Carcassonne, but is it as good as Carcassonne? But as I started playing it, no, you know what, there is something there. There's, as you said, there's enough different to make me think... I could play this and I could then go and play Carcassonne and I wouldn't have exactly the same experience. And I think that's what you're looking for. Do I prefer it to Carcassonne? No. But would I play it alongside Carcassonne? Yes, because it's different enough for me. Yeah, I think it's kind of smothered by the comparison, but it's invited that comparison. So it's hard to feel, you know, it's clearly deliberate. The game is not as smooth as Carcassonne, but it's also not as comfortable and as familiar and those differences make it feel odd when you first play it. And it kind of puts the game into an uncanny valley of gaming where your brain's going, oh, I know how to play this game. Oh, I don't. Oh, that's a bit odd. So it does take that brain shift to tell your eyes it's not seeing what it thinks it's seeing. I'm not playing Carcassonne. I'm playing a different game. And I have to think my way around that and take it on its own merits. Now, again, you can't blame anyone for doing that. It's completely invited by the game. But as its own game, I enjoyed playing Carcosa. I think it scratches a different itch. It's slightly more complicated. The scoring, that ability to race but set up a map position for yourself, I quite like that. It's not too long. It's not overcomplicated by loads of stuff. It's just different stuff. So I think Carcosa is a decent game, and I think it is worth people looking at and attempting to judge it on its own merits despite how much it invites that not to be done. For me, Ronan, Kokoza, I think, if you really genuinely want to go in and try to enjoy this game, come at it from the Lovecraft angle. Because what it does to convey that... Are you allowed to measure the Lovecraft angle without (laughs) someone could do? (laughs) Now, now. So I think what it does is convey that world 
really well. The flipping over the tiles, as I've already mentioned, that really conveys trying to get the realm of the king in yellow into the human realm to invade us and to make us all go mad or what have you. The ley lines and things like that, all things that you will find in those Lovecraft worlds. Really good. The cultists going mad and then having to rehabilitate and then come out and then go again. Really strong thematic choices. So if you want to compare it to Carcassonne, it's there. It's staring you right in the face. And if you will do that, you're going to get a bit upset. Ronan's kind of drove me to play it a few more times and I got past that. But some people aren't going to get past it. And I don't blame them. I can't blame them because I I was right there along with them. It's a good game. It's something that I would play again. And that was Carcosa. Okay. I drove you. I like the thought of that. You're beating your play this game. Play this game. (laughs) Oh, all right. Okay. Our penultimate game this time around is Hanamakoji. Originally out in 2013, although I think pretty hard to get in English at that time. It's a two-player, 15-minute game. Currently published by Emperor S4, who've published Roundhouse, Crows Overkill, and Hanzi. And the designer is Kota Nakayama. And it's his only design, as far as I can tell. Hanamakoji is a famous geisha street in the old capital of Japan. And players are going to be playing cards either side of seven geisha masters. And they're attempting to gain the charm of the masters. It's played with a 21 card item deck, which is shuffled up. One is thrown out and each player is given a hand of six and four action tiles. The Geisha Masters in the middle of the board have got values of 5, 4, 3, 3, 2, 2 and 2. And the values are both the number of charm points they are worth and the number of cards of that type which are in the deck. The equal number cards are split up by colour and design. On your turn, you're going to draw one card from the deck and then you're going to use one of your action tiles. And the four actions you can take are you can choose one card from your hand, place it face down under a tile, and that will be added to your scoring cards at the end of the game. You can hide two cards under an action tile and those cards will not score at the end of the game. You can take three cards from your hand, offer them all to your opponent. Your opponent will take one, add them to their side of the Hanamakoji street, and you will have the other two, and they'll be added to your score. Or the last one is four cards from your hand. You make two pairs, and your opponent gets first choice of which pair to take and score. Once each player has completed their four actions in any order they like, everyone reveals that first card that they put under there to score later and then we look at the seven geisha masters whoever has the majority of cards on the side of the geisha master wins the charm for this round and they move a token to them if anyone wins four out of the seven geisha masters they have won the game or if no one's done that but someone has managed to score 11 charm points then that also is a win If no one has achieved either of those two win conditions, you go to another round and you maintain control of the masters you have controlled. And if there's a tie next round, you will still maintain control and it plays slightly differently there, but only in strategy wise. Sean, that was a quick rules explanation for a quick two player game, which I'm throwing it out there, has got stunning artwork. Were you stunned into submission by Hannah Makoji? I think it's got stunning individual card artwork. But I think when it's all on the table, it's a bit higgledy-piggledy for me. I'm off to play my harp and (laughs) compose an ode to your wrongness on that. It is beautiful. The individual cards are very, very nice. I would go as far as beautiful. They are beautiful. Thanks. Now, (laughs) you're welcome. here's the big problem you face when you start playing the game. 
you don't want to do any of the actions. <laughs> None of them feel good. It's just like, oh no, I don't know if I should score this card. I don't know what's going to be important. Or I don't want to offer this person three cards. Ah! From the beautiful charm, from the offset, it pushes you with these decisions and you're there going, these are all awful decisions. I'm not a big fan of feeling uncomfortable in games. And I started off thinking, where's the, the optimum move here? Where is it? There's got to be something that stands out of the crowd. It's the least negative move. Yeah, it really is. And it really took me a while to get my head around that. I was like, there's got to be a good move here. <laughs> and in the end, I just started playing things. Like, well, I've got to do something. All right, I'll do that. <laughs> What's, where's my optimum move? And I think that kind of went through with me a little bit. I never really saw my optimum move. Never before have I seen heads go to hands so quickly as when people start playing this game. And it's, hold on, what? Oh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> so definitely when I think you first start playing, you're just poking around a bit and you're going to realize, oh, I should never have offered those two cards. I'm a total idiot. And there's a bit of pain in possibly learning. Now, it's not the deepest strategy, but slightly learning what you should possibly and should not be doing at certain times. Yeah, but it's still not perfect information, is it? So there is oh, definitely, there is yeah. definitely an element of sort of just dangling your hook in the water and see what comes out. It's, it's <laughs> not it, it, that which makes it even more uncomfortable because if you can work it out, right? He's put that down. He's done that. It's, there's other cards that you've just got. No, you're not privy to. You don't really know what you're doing. Well, one of the things that is interesting is the hand management because. Yeah, you want that information out so that you can make the best decisions you can. The way to get the most information out is to take the three and four action and get three or four cards into play so that you can start seeing how the pattern of scoring might be going. The problem with that is if you play your three and four as your first actions, you are going to be stuck with two cards in your hand and you're going to be at some point not able to choose what cards go into scoring and which cards don't. So getting information early is really, really even kind of more risky than not having information because you stick yourself with your hand size. I think we're looking at it from two different points of view. You love the agony of that choice, and I'm thinking, but I don't have a choice. I either show my hand, and at the end, I'm pretty much at the mercy of what cards I have in my hand, or I don't, and I don't have that information to make a decision. I know, we, I know there's factors of that, and there is there obviously is a little bit of information going on, but he, I think you but revel you, in You're always able to see seven cards, right? You can see seven at the very first turn, seven of the 20 cards in place. You have at least a third of the information available to you. All right, that's not great, but it's something to go. It's not like you could take... No, 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 it's not. No, dark. no, sorry if I'm making it sound just completely blind. No, no, not at all. You are making somewhat informed decisions on what you play and then those decisions become more informed as the game goes on by the nature of the actions one thing i'll say is that not every game makes it to a second hand but those that do it changes up the level of thinkingness in the game because it changes how important each of the masters are to you because you really need to take them from the other person and it's easier to hold on to your own ones but then you know that the other person is going to be targeting your own ones because if it's a tie, you retain it and they don't want that to happen. Then there's a more of a, oh, I've got to give up on that one, but I've really got to target this one going on. You start the round with more information the second round and you become more targeted in your play. 
Yeah, for sure. I think us pair of Egypts nearly went into a third round. That is, if ever, I know we talked about it before, the fact that we can't play games like Pictionary together and stuff like that, because we think too much alike. It's not fair. <laughs> if ever there was a game that showed this. I played it against four or five other people, and second rounds was completely rare. It just didn't, maybe one game in ten. Every time. Me and you. Every time. Every time got to a second round. We were there going, we've got, both got two fives, both got two fours, got a, a blue, just like almost identical boards at the end of each round. And when, it, and when the games it. were won on that second round, it was literally by a flip of a card, like literally eight cards made the difference. <laughs> that is a real worry. Yeah. Uh, I think my last point on it is that it doesn't last more than 15 minutes and it has got thinkingness to it and it needs judging alongside other 15-minute games and how much thinkiness and tactics and strategy they employ. And that is very much where I'm going to be judging this game because it's so short. As they say, Ronin, it doesn't outstay its welcome, for sure. So for me to sum up on Hanamakoji, I think you are to blame for me, my, my attitude going into the game and what's something that's kind of stuck with me. You told me I was going to love it and... The decisions are beautiful. For me, I was a bit uncomfortable with the decisions. I'm not reveling difficult, weird decisions like you do. But, yeah, it's a bit too abstract for me. Not having exact information or not being 100% like Lutfest, it kind of didn't sit in either camp for me. I don't hate it by any means, but like if I'm going to play a quick card game, why would I not play something like Love Letter? Because it doesn't work two-player, noob. <laughs> okay, we're going to go two-player. But then uh, my, my example for two-player doesn't fit your criteria. I was going to say, oh, why would I not play Omen Rain of Fire? So, because it takes an hour. Yeah, it's a great game. It is a great game, but it takes an hour. Yeah, but listen. To judge this in class. I'm going to judge It'll it on... better the... two-player, 15 <laughs> It's okay. I would definitely play it again because of the time frame. It's not the great game that I... Th- would led to believe it would be, is what I'll say. You're throwing my own enthusiasm back in my face. I am, I am. It has to be done. Yeah, you know, I try not to tell you when I get excited about a game. I try Don't. to just like, no. Don't. I'm not going to tell him, oh, do you want to play Hanamakoji? It's okay. Because <laughs> then I get disappointed if it's not great. I know, I don't want to disappoint you, 90%, man. I want you to join in my enthusiasm. Yeah, but it's 90% me- of the time, when you're like, it's a great game. You're going to love it. You can pick a game that I love from a mile away, 90% of the time. Right. This wasn't Let, let me flip this round. Let me flip this around. Every time I'm enthusiastic, go, that Egypt's going to let me down. That should dampen your expectations. <laughs> Lowering expectations is the key to a happy life in all walks. I'll stand by Consider that. Right, Koji. I should probably get back to that rather than <laughs> attempting to philosophize. Brilliant. Looks good agonizing decisions which i absolutely love i very much recommend it this is probably best in class for 2017 for me very short two-player fun card game hanamakoji check it out sean lead us to the promised land in our final game okay we're going to round up today with grifters 2015 release from indie boards and cards designed by dave fulton and jacob Tlapek. Two to four players in about 30 minutes. This game is set in the dystopian universe. I believe it's the same universe as the Resistance and Coup. 
And what are you? You are mob bosses. You're going to be building your organization by recruiting and directing operatives in order to steal as much money as possible from the corrupt government, the evil corporations, and of course the other players. You have a player mat, which is your hideout. And on this hideout, you have three knights numbered one to three. You're going to have stacks of job cards with a mixture of the three icons used in the game showing. You're also going to have a stack of ISK, which are the coins, and you're going to have a stack of specialist cards and a discard pile. The game itself, players have two things that you can do on a turn. You can play a specialist card or a ringleader's cards, which are some of your starting cards, for the text ability. Now, some of these are to steal money, mess with the other players, manipulate your own play area, etc. Or you can complete a job by matching the icons on the cards of the specialists to the ones required by the job cards. You can do both of these by placing your single or multiple cards on night one. And then the next turn, you're going to move those cards along to make, make sure night one is always empty. And eventually, they're going to come off your hideout mat and are available for the next round. The game is going to end when all jobs are gone, all specialists are gone, or all the money is gone. Players get bonuses for collecting sets of the same job type. And at the end, the most money wins. Grifters, Ronan. You're a, you've, you've always struck me as a bit of a grifter. Huge level of interaction. Taking the gold cards from each other, beating each other to the punch, messing with the card flow, knocking someone's gang back to night one when it wasn't gang three, stealing cards of each other's hands. All of this, is it thematic, Sean? Is it, yeah, we're crowning with each other, or is it just too chaotic? I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Any game with crime, when you're messing with each other, you're going to have that slight overlapping theme. But I think in general, the theme is quite tacked on and it is just a game where you're just messing with people. And the variety in ways that you can mess with people is, is when this game's at its best. Yeah, but it can be frustrating. Say you've set up your gang to be a particular set and you've only got one blue symbol and you need it to get that gold card and then someone plays a card just and they steal the blue symbol out of your hand and you go, oh, okay, that happened. Yeah, yeah, really frustrating. When I started off the game stealing everyone's money in the last game we played, Roland, and then somebody got a card that kept putting all of my cards back to night one. Mm, who, who did that That seems like me? a... The wise angel of vengeance appeared at the table and showed you that you really should stop stealing the money from him. What do we think? (laughs) The level of interaction is high, but, you know, I'm torn on it. It's a good thing because you're all involved all the time. But in a game where actually you need to plan and manage your deck and the deck management aspect is really clever and hand management and the fact that you're trying to get certain powers to get certain cards and certain groups in your hand and you can work hard over five or six rounds just to get the right combination and someone comes along with a card and says boop that's mine but linking into that there are so many unique cards with so many unique powers what they have done is made it very clear what each card does, it's got a concise description on there with artwork. The cards, to me, have both function and form. They do. I really, really like the art and the layout of the cards on this. I, I have, uh, it's no Hannah Makoji, by the way. It's no Hannah Makoji. No, no. It's not a different, completely different art style. 
you can teach it within seconds because you've essentially only got two things to do. You either play a card for the text on it or you're completing a job. The, the cards sort of teach the game to you. The other thing that when you're teaching it is, and this for me is a downside to it, is actually, you talked about before, you can start off stealing everyone's money at the beginning and if you're a new player, it feels quite harsh. In the end, apart from possibly slight select collection bonus for taking a lot of the same type of jobs the first third of the game in terms of point scoring is almost meaningless you're really attempting to set up your deck but that's hard to judge because you don't really know what jobs are going to become available to you you have to watch what everyone else is doing to set up their deck but one card stolen from here there and you don't know what's going on can can change which way you should be prioritizing without having that knowledge so the first third is kind of a bit of a crapshoot anything could be going on I think this first third is about setting up your deck and it's about looking at what cards other people are taking. Yeah, but the issue is there, Sean. I might be monitoring what you're doing, seeing that you're getting the cards lined up to take from a particular goal stack. And then let's say Rachel and Natalie take two cards out of your hand by a player. And then I don't know if you're still going for the same stack. Yeah, thematically, criminal gangs should know everything that's going on, but that chaos is... Yeah, I do. I see where you're going there, Roland. I think, though, the ability to stop people doing things is, is where this game's most interesting. If you know somebody's got a load of cards and they're gearing up and they're, they're going through those job cards quite quickly, then you start messing with them. You start making those teams go back to night one, start taking things off them so that they haven't got that perfect set anymore. So I, I think that's where the balance is. Now, what I will say, Roland... There are two things that I dislike about the game. Hit me. I didn't find out about it until I started playing at the higher player counts. I think you're right. I think at the higher player counts, it does get a little bit chaotic. And I also think that those cards that come in, because you don't play with all the job cards at two and three players. When those cards come in at the four-player mark, the ones that come in are overpowered and massively swingy. can mean losing the game and winning the game on the turn of one card. Didn't like that. No, we're talking about a game in which uh, low 20s might be a winning score, mid-20s in a four-player game, and you can have a 12-point swing on yeah. one card. And it could just be turn order. Yeah, absolutely. Mm that stuff because you know it's limited the number of gold cards available and the other second part to that sean is mm. knowing that then it becomes a case where well i'm not taking the penultimate card or i'm not taking the third last card either because i know that i'm setting you up for the huge scoring underneath i'm going to get three points but you're going to get six and if i wait for you to take it i'll get the six points then you can get to game maybe stalling out a yeah, bit and, yeah. and people sort of definitely at those higher player counts, that is a problem, and that's one of the game end conditions. I went on BGG and checked this, and the community recommended it with four players. Well, I was slightly puzzled, put it that way. I didn't get it at all. You know what? The best player count that I've played this with is two. It was a real to and fro. You kind of knew exactly what each other had. You had that almost perfect information, depending on how good your memory was. And you just had to guess when things were coming rather than what things were coming. So it made it a different experience to me, and it was a lot tighter. But then with two, some of the powers 
feel a bit weak because take a million from everyone else. Well, I'll just take a million. So the problem for me is it's not in the cards. It's not in the card game. It's not in the, the card management and the hand management and in the back, back and forth play, two player. I love all of that. I think the mechanisms are great. I think it's a fun experience until you get to the scoring. And I hate the scoring. It's far too end card based. Really love is for this system to be graphed onto a different scoring system. And it might be a case of maybe a little board, a bit of area control that you build buildings with your combinations and they go into play. And then there's a bit more thought as to where you're going. The card management system itself deserves a better end game experience and something a bit cleverer than these huge point swings that you get at the moment. I mean, for grifters, promising design, but in the end, flatters to deceive. Okay, so for me, I got grifters in a, as a prize at LobsterCon. It wasn't really fast. It was one of the last things on the table. Didn't really know much about it. Played it. Really enjoyed it. I loved the art. I loved the the the, the basic y theme. You know, I kind of like that dystopian world. I think this is a, a lovely filler. I think there's loads of interaction. Hardly any downtime. Really easy to learn. And for me, it works really well with two players, which makes it an absolute hit in my household. And that's Grifters. And we will see you in our outro. Thank you so much for joining us for our episode 97 of the Game Pit Podcast. Thank you, Sean. And thank you, Ronan. You're very welcome. As we've been saying, and we'll probably annoy you about for a few more weeks, we have started our pit stop videos. Please head to YouTube, subscribe to the channel. They're just, none of them are more than two and a half minutes at the moment. Quick overviews of games might give you more of an idea if you want to look deeper into them or not. Hopefully you've heard our first two SM preview shows. There are two more coming, the last one releasing next Tuesday. And then we're going to be giving you shows Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday from Essen. Telling you about what we've seen and mostly the games we've played. They won't be long. We'll be trying to just give you a quick overview. Then post Essen, loads of pit stops, loads of gaming coverage. Also, Sean, we have got... Three conventions coming up where people can see us. They are Essen, when we'll be on the Dice Tower booth at 1 o'clock on the Thursday and the Friday. By all means, please do come up and say hello to us. Tell us what you love or hate. We'll be in Game Pit t-shirts. You'll know who we are. In November, Sean? In November, Rona, we have got LobsterCon mentioned earlier in the episode. mentioned already, yep. Yep, we are going to be there for the whole of that. It goes from Friday to Sunday. And yeah, it's a great place just to chill out by the seaside, have a load of fun playing games and maybe put up with us too as well. That's meetup.com slash London on board. And the second weekend in March, Sean? Aircon. It'll be our debut attendance at Aircon. We've had great things about this Cons started off small and it's growing every single year. So going up to Yorkshire for that and we're looking forward. Rodney Smith from Watch It Played is their star guest. I can't wait to meet Rodney. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that one too, Ronan. It's just, I'm overexcited. 
I'm overexcited. That's it. I can't take any more. <laughs> you reached right. saturation point. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Well, that was a while ago. Okay. Yes. 12 more previews coming up in a few days for you folks. Look out for them. Thank you. And we'll catch you next time on the Game Pit Podcast. And as always, we are proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. To contact us, our email is thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com and another fantastic way of contacting us is on our Board Game Geek Guild. We're on social media. We have a Facebook page. We also have a Twitter account at Game Pit Podcast, and we're on Instagram. If you wish to download our episodes, we're on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. And as Ronan's already mentioned, we now have a YouTube channel. So please go there to have a look at our new Pit Stop videos. Thank you so much for listening. Music by Ian Aaron. Boom.